The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are, uh, we pick a book of the, of the Bible and we preach through that, and so we are in uh, Luke 7 this morning. Um, all the verses will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, so uh, don't worry about that. Also, um, one of the things we do here is um, if you have questions about anything, like as we're talking through this, like questions about a verse or questions about something kind of related to what we're talking about, uh, the Q&A number is there. Uh, you can text that question in. Um, it'll be on the bottom of all the slides. Or you can do the old-fashioned and raise your hand. But if you feel intimidated by groups, you can just send that in. I'll answer those questions here at the end. So um, with that being said, I'm going to read uh, Luke 7 for us, uh, 18 to 30. Um, excuse me, 35, and then we will pray and ask for God's help. <clears throat> the disciples of John reported all these things to him, that's to John, and John, calling to, to his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is coming, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, that's Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many uh, he bestowed, uh, many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered to them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And when the messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those are who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people heard this, I'm sorry, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for them, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. And a dirge, we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." Father, as we look at these words and we consider the story of Jesus, we, help that we ask that you would help us to evaluate our expectations of what your kingdom is like and to be open-handed with the nature of grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure how many of you have had the unfortunate pleasure of uh, having to remove wallpaper. Has anybody had that? I, 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 when we bought our house, our house was full of wallpaper. Um, I watched YouTube videos, 
and they set up false expectations of what wallpaper, they made it seem like you just wash it, scrape it, and then it just pulls right off. And then uh, my expectations of what uh, it ended up being turned into a week of a small scraper and a steamer and, and doing all of that work. And it's something that I would never wish upon my greatest enemy. I'm not sure if any of you have seen, um, sorry, Nick, I'm getting a lot of feedback up here. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if any of you have seen uh, Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure, but there's a scene where he gets ushered into these various pits of hell, and they're just people reliving their worst memories. And I wouldn't wish removal of wallpaper upon anybody's experience of a continual hell. But <laughs> anyhow, these expectations that we have are a large part of the suffering and disappointments we experience in life, and that's ultimately what we're addressing here in this passage. Um, Anybody who's lived long enough, you know what it's like to either get, in, get married and you realize marriage is not what I thought it was going to be, or you take training and you show up to the job and the job is not what you thought it was going to be. I mean, how many people have college degrees and they show up to their job and they're like, none of this ex- prepared me for what I'm actually doing. Um, expectations of what a movie is going to be like, and it's disappointing. Expectations are a large part of our lives, and that's what Jesus is addressing here, because ultimately what Jesus is doing here in the beginning of Luke up to chapter 9, Jesus has been telling people who he is, what he's like, and what his kingdom's all about. Chapter 6, we talked through his sermon, right? His sermon on what is the kingdom like, what is God like, what is his grace like. And all of that, you have the poor Uh, receive the kingdom, the rich receive their inheritance now, right? Those who are on the outside receive the kingdom. Those who are on the inside of structure and power are the ones who are on the outside of God's kingdom. And people think, okay, I I think I've got it. And then we show up into chapter 7, and the illustrations of that are a centurion and a widow. And so people's expectations of what God's like and what Jesus' kingdom is like are all over the place. And Jesus seeking to address that in this passage, goes after our expectations. Who is God? What he's like? What we end up in the story is we end up with a friend in Jesus. That is ultimately what Jesus draws us into, is not how to have the right expectations, but have the right friend through all of them. So, main point of this passage, we're going to put this up here. Jesus' friendship invites us to reimagine our expectations of God. This is ultimately what this passage is driving us towards. Jesus is calling us not to get the right answers to life, but to get him in our life as we walk through it. So we're going to kind of pick through this, and we're going to see a bunch of expectations that are hoisted on Jesus and how Jesus interacts with them. And we're going to process first the John the Baptist expectations. We're going to see in that that Jesus is inviting us to evaluate our good expectations. So Let me read a few passages here. We've read this already, but verse 18. The disciples reported, disciples of John, so these would have been, you know, the people who were supporters of John the Baptist, um, disciples of his teaching, looking forward to the kingdom of God and the Messiah. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. Now, this is because John so far has been arrested and put in prison, and so he will ultimately be beheaded in this context where he's at. So he's in prison, but he's got visitation rights, I guess. And so here he is, and he's like, okay, I need to figure out 
have I done my job or am I still trying to help people look forward to somebody else coming? So John calls two of his disciples to him and they send him to Jesus to ask this burning question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So in the midst of this, you can feel this tension of, I mean, I don't know what your expectations for life and your life's work are, you know, like I wanted whatever your job is, whatever your family situation is, like we all tend to have goals in life, like I want to accomplish this. And John the Baptist is kind of like, bro, I've pegged all my money on all the chips are in on me leading people to see the Messiah. So this is a burning question. I'm expecting this is the whole reason for my life. So they, he sends his disciples to, to Jesus. And when the two men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, we, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And then Jesus does a weird thing right? He says, basically, look at what I've done. That's kind of where the verses go. John's expectations of what Jesus was like, or what the Messiah was like, and what Jesus would be, were not kind of like, hey man, like, I was hoping that your campaign, your campaign speech would be a little bit better. Like your promises, it seems like, you know, like when I was, like I remember when I was in high school, I ran for vice president for my senior class. And you know, when you make a, a campaign speech when you're running for like anything in high school, you're like, I'm gonna free ketchup packets in the ca cafeteria or something like that, you know? Like those sort of things. And John the Baptist, his expectations are not just kind of like randomly chosen. I wanna put up here, so we read from Psalm 60, or sorry, Isaiah 61 earlier in Luke. Isaiah 61 starts out with this. The spirit of the Lord is of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, this is talking about the Messiah. To bring good news to the poor, he has sent, uh, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound. John might have really been hoping for that one. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So John, when he's looking for the Messiah... He's expecting, look, we've been oppressed by these Roman guys for a super long time. We've had a lot of battles with them. These guys are in the promised land. We've got to get them out. Uh, don't like them. Um, the religious leaders, they're oppressing their people. And so he's expecting the Messiah to come. And it's really, those expectations are kind of informed by that last line, the day of vengeance of our God. He's looking for God to clean house and heal up. Jesus, I see that you're healing people, but that's why he's asking, is there another? Basically, is this a two-parter team, right? Are you going to do the healing stuff, and is somebody going to come and do the justice stuff? Because I really want that justice stuff. And you can imagine that being said by somebody who's on the execution line. He'd like it sooner than later. So John is looking for the Messiah to come with vengeance and healing. And Jesus' response is basically to say, you've got the right idea, but you've got to broaden out. Right? I find it interesting, would you, if you can put the screens back up there for... In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So this is kind of talking about the, the current day's workload and resume that Jesus sends back. And he answered them... 
Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. It's interesting to me that he emphasizes at the end, the poor have good news preached to them. We saw in Isaiah 61 that, right, he's talking about a lot of these things that Isaiah 61 predicts, right? The blind will receive sight, the lame will walk, all that stuff. But then he emphasizes the poor have good news preached to them. Now, one of the things we've kind of talked about as we've worked through is basically that the, this category of poor is not just economics. Basically, this category of poor is anybody who is on the outs of the powers of uh, the structures of power of the day, right? People who are on the outside of the congregation, who are not in like the religious authorities. People who are on the outside of politics, being oppressed by the local government, who are not in the position of authority, right? And it's interesting. Jesus is going to go on to cite Malachi 3, verse 1. Can we put that up there? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, right? John. And the, Lord will, uh, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and his messengers of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord host. Can we just go over there to verse 5? This is the part that, again, then I will draw near to you for judgment. This is, again, John's expectations of what the Messiah would look like. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, we can talk another time about what all that sorcerer and stuff like that means, but it's interesting to consider that in this story up to this point, Jesus has come in. We just talked about a story of a widow who has received back her son from the dead, right? Because otherwise she would have been on basically depending on her community to support her and supply her needs, which is a very precarious situation, right? This expectations, what can she expect? He comes in to bring comfort and provision through the resurrection of her son, right? against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, and, again, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner. You see here, these are all categories of what Luke thinks of when he says the poor, right? Those people who are on the outside, people who are not included, people who are excluded easily, who don't look like they measure up to what we want. And it's interesting that in the centurion, we have Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the centurion is the first illustration of what that means. It's not an obvious, he's got all this money, so he's obviously the rich. The centurion, what we saw in that story is, here's somebody whose who's desperate need for God is realized in a posture of dependence upon God's very word, period. See, Jesus comes to broaden our expectations of what it means to trust in the grace of God for the kingdom. I find it interesting that what Jesus says to him is, here's my resume, send that back to John. He doesn't answer, do you ever find that you're, when you're reading the life of Jesus that you're kind of frustrated <laughs> with kind of how he interacts with our questions? He's like, I've got a question for you, and Jesus is like, here's a side, here's a scenic view. 
to your answer. Jesus doesn't go after his question with a direct answer because the answer is really not the issue. What John needs is to experience more of who Jesus is. Jesus' answer draws him in to ponder. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I'm like. And he draws him in to consider and to be shaped into a person who ponders who Jesus is rather than getting the X and O's of his answer. It's interesting. I'm not sure if if you're aware of this. The number changes depending on who you look at. Jesus asks about 339 questions in his ministry in the gospel accounts. He asks over 300 questions. Do you think Jesus is like walking around just kind of like begging for answers? The way he asks, the reason he asks questions and the way he responds to John's question here is to draw people into himself. God, why did you disappoint this expectation? I mean, you think about all the ways in which you experience disappointment and frustration in life. And none of them are like, God, you know, Nobody's singing Dolly Parton's Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz or something like that. And I'm so disappointed. It's basic things like, God, like, I don't want to be alone and I want to have a spouse. God, I don't want to feel like I'm excluded. I want to feel like I belong. God, I, I don't know how many people here wrestle with, I want children and it seems like forever. God, I want a job that's meaningful and it just continues to frustrate or to make me feel demeaned, right? Those are the levels of expectations that it seems like God really cares about who you are. God really cares about you being valued. God really cares about you enjoying the goodness of this life. And yet we continue to bump into these frustrations and disappointed expectations. And I think what Jesus is calling us to here in the example of John, do we take those as an invitation to evaluate our expectations with Jesus? Or, as we're going to see here with the Pharisees, do we harden around them? So let me just kind of bump down here, 24 32. When John's messenger has gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaking in the wind? Right, again, notice Jesus is asking questions here, right? They're rhetorical questions, but they're going after expectations, just to These are a part of those over 300 questions that Jesus asks in his ministry. What did you go out to see? A reed shaking in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, right? Somebody dressed nice. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is whom it is written... Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet to the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And here's the kicker. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for them, for they had not been baptized by him. That's John. And then Jesus says, what shall I compare you to? To children in the marketplace calling out, we played a a flute for you and you didn't dance, and a song for you, a dirge, and and you did not weep, right? Basically, they got their boombox out in the marketplace. (laughs) We played, 
know, whatever the top beat of the day is. I mean, I could say my songs, but you guys can fill in the blanks of whatever songs would make you dance, <laughs> right? You see, the, the Pharisees, um, they calcified, they hardened around their expectations, right? This is, um, this is what we call, uh, some of the ways we get around this type of thing is in the scientific literature, there's called blinding. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with this, but you blind research so that you can validate that it's legitimate research. And I know some of you are in this. I'm merely a lowly pastor. I know I'm going to mess this up. But the idea being that you want the research validated because so-and-so wrote it, and if so-and-so wrote it, they're an authority. So it's blind who wrote it so that you can evaluate the research on its own merits, right? People have their expectations of like, well, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote the book, so it must be like really true, right? And it's like, well, it might be, but we want to make sure the research is valid. So in this situation, I think the Pharisees had the same sort of expectations that John did. I think that they looked at the same verses and they're like, bro, like, where is this vengeance? And again, I feel like I'm not trying to like make a... Uh, make an apology for the Pharisees so that like they come out looking better than they should. But I just want to say, the Pharisees, again, they were a long line of religious people who had defended God's law, who had defended God's covenant community, who had been protectors of what it meant to be faithful in God's economy and to worship God. They had done all of this stuff to keep people focusing on God, to worship God. They had defended what they thought was the right way. And so then you have this guy show up and say, you guys are losing your perspective. This is the way of God. You can understand their frustration and kind of like, who are you? <laughs> like, bro, like you're from Nazareth. Like what good comes from Manchester, man? Like we're from Boston, you know, like that sort of thing. You know, whatever sort of, you know, ways in which people look down on other people. The Pharisees, I think, are looking for the same things that John is looking for, except they're making their questions into, God, you must be like this rather than should we be looking. You notice in John's questions, he basically said, should we look for another? What's the deal here? He's open-handed with those questions. And the Pharisees are kind of like, you must do this. You didn't fill it out exactly what we wanted to. As I was trying to think through how to kind of bring us into this drama, it would be similar to if you booked... Uh, a vacation and a tour guide to take you to go see, we'll say like the Grand Canyon or the top of Mount Washington. And they did all the work to kind of plan out the trip. What's gonna, we're gonna stop here, we're gonna take this route, we're gonna go to these restaurants, and we're gonna arrive at the destination. And then when you get to the destination, the tour guide is so frustrated that you wanna go see the Grand Canyon rather than talk to them about what's going on. That's similar to what's going on here, right? The Pharisees had done all their work to make sure that people were receiving the Messiah, were getting prepared for the Messiah, ready to see him, and then the Messiah shows up, and I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. I don't care what tour guide is saying, what? I'm going to go look at the Grand Canyon. Tour guide aside. They're getting frustrated because they're like, look, you guys are going off to this Messiah, and you aren't listening to what we had to say. The point being... Their expectations had hardened, and they were insistent that Jesus was distracting from the way of God. 
I just want to ask this kind of question, and then we can move on. As I read this and kind of consider the history of the Pharisees, I can experience, I can see in my own self, and I think as we watch our lives as Christians in a religious context, it's very easy for us to kind of become like the Pharisees and hold a tight grip around our expectations of who God is and what he's like and how he works among us. We go to church on Sundays, we show up, we expect God to continue to move on a regular basis. We've been faithful, we've given, we've served, we've had small groups, we've seen God work. This can easily set us up to say, well, this is the way God works. And he must work like this all the time. And then life comes along and it kind of throws a little rock at our glass steeple. And everything kind of comes tumbling down, so to speak. And we get frustrated. God, where have you been? What's going on? Why is this happening to me? God, where are you? All these legitimate questions. It shows that maybe we've gotten used to what we expect God to do for us and how we show up and how we worship him and what it's like to be a part of his family rather than the point being here. These people have Jesus face to face in front of them. And they've gotten all bent out of shape on these expectations of what God should be like. I mean, I don't know about you. I would love to see Jesus speak face to face. Not, never happened to me personally. If it's happened to you, I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> I think our expectations in life when we experience their frustrations, these questions are an invitation to God. God, where are you in the midst of this? Rather than, God, where have you been? See the difference of tone? I also get the sense, we'll move on after this. I also get the sense that John was grateful for where God had shown up and was leaning in with legitimate questions. And the Pharisees were very kind of like, God owed us. Where are you going to show up again, God, according to our rule? I don't get the sense that gratitude and expectations can live in the same heart, or at least live in the same heart harmoniously. Let's move on here. We'll end with reimagining our expectations for grace. John the Baptist, oh, so, so sorry, Jesus has just kind of said, you guys expected this, sang in the you know, beatbox in the, in the marketplace. Jesus says, for John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you said, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. It's interesting, you have basically these two polar opposites. And Jesus says, they're both the way of wisdom, right? You have John uh, who's eating bugs and honey out in the desert. And you have Jesus, who's, you know, we can't hide the fact that it's really just him eating some sweet salami and some, you know, wine and bourbon or whatever it was back then for them and having a good old time with the pals. Like, whatever that looked like, that's what Jesus was doing. And basically, people were saying, like, how can you be faithful to God when you guys are either overindulging or underindulging? And Jesus is basically saying, like, 
Well, it's God's world, and he's called us to be faithful to him, and so whichever path you follow is a way of wisdom in being faithful to God. That's what grace looks like. There's basically these two different polar opposites, and it's almost as a way to say these are two polar ends of the spectrum. Faithfulness resides within each one because each one within whatever you follow on that spectrum is attempting to just enjoy who God is and be faithful to him in their own terms, right? Maybe that's, you know, living on extreme austerity, like monk-like life, being faithful to God, or maybe that's a life where you are um, enjoying the goodness of God and celebrating with other people on a regular basis about who God is and what he's done for you. Like, both of those are enjoying God's grace, and God, Jesus is fighting against the expectation, you must do life for me in one way and one way only, Right? Like, I can't tell you what your life is going to look like with Jesus and what you're going to do as an expression of faith in him. I can tell you, like, there's, like, top ten commandments of what it means to not do things, you know? Like, it, it's going to be hard to convince me, um, you know, that you're stealing your neighbor's boat for the glory of God <laughs> because Jesus wants you to go enjoy some time in the lake with the bros. That's not going to fly. Otherwise... Everything else is an expression of what, God, what it means to enjoy God's goodness in the diversity of ways and is not something that we can be set down in expectations. But here is something that we can expect. I don't know if you, met, you, you caught it. Reading verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet I tell you, the one, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So verse 28 is a reminder that when we become disciples, when we follow Jesus, the expectations are not set, well, God's spoken to us from his temple and we listen. The expectations are, and Jesus is going to develop this later, we were invited into the very family of God. And you are a son or daughter of the living God himself, empowered by the resurrected Christ to enjoy the goodness of God in all of life. That is the expectation, that God wants you to be a part of his family, that God enjoys you being a part of his family, that he celebrates and, and, and is himself coming down and sitting at table to celebrate with you, to enjoy life with you, to walk through life alongside you. That is what Jesus is saying here, right? John the Baptist was sent as a prophet, and so there's a distance between God and him, though there is a familiarity. With Jesus, the term of the New Testament is we're family. Then, last thing here. Did you pick up here verse 34? Look at him, a, a, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Thank God. <laughs> Can you imagine what life would be like if Jesus was not a friend of tax collectors and sinners? I don't know what your life looks like this week, what, what's ahead of you, but we walk into life this week, not merely sons and daughters of the living God, but we walk into life with a friend to the anxious, a friend to the overwhelmed, a friend to, as we talked about earlier, single parents, a friend to the fearful, a friend to the overworked, 
a friend to those who are struggling just to get through the day, who might even be white-knuckling it just to get to lunch. Jesus is a friend to all those who experience brokenness in life. Thank God. So when our expectations put us off kilter, the leaning of this passage is not to say, you just got to repent. That's not what a friend says. A friend comes alongside and says, let's, let's reimagine what God's doing here. Let's take a bigger picture. And the bigger picture includes Jesus himself helping you to see the broad scope of God's grace in your life and what it means to follow him. Let's pray. God, as we've looked at this passage, I pray that you would help us to reimagine our lives with Jesus beside us, with you as our Father, and the Spirit empowering us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.